0: Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 320, Aaron Lindsay, When Mary Sue Failed the Bechdel Test. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage, and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in (laughs) 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 Sci-Fi Publishing. to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. And Christy Cherish. And this episode, we're going to be bringing you, and I'm going to hand it over to Christy a little bit to give you a preview of the discussion that she had with Aaron Lindsay. But before we get into that preview, Christy and I have not chatted. It, it wasn't as long as the last time. We neglected one another. I think that was like a full month to six weeks, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it
1: was like six weeks, which is crazy. But this time you had the better ex- you had the excuse about well, why we did why why we didn't chat. So. Yeah,
0: why we didn't chat. Well, if you want to call it an excuse. I I ended up talking with Reason. Yeah. Reason. Re- it was a reason. It although- was a valid reason. <laughs> Although I, I did figure out how to work out an interview with, uh, with Rob uh, for the Grim Tidings podcast. So I met with Rob and Philip to do an interview. And I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be forthcoming, but I had to move the whole studio my microphone and my mixing board and everything. I had to move that all out of my studio upstairs into my office. And I had to kick the entire family and the pug, Foggy. I had to kick him out of the house. Uh, for me to have that conversation with Rob and Philip for the for the grim tidings, but uh, we we had a little water issue down my my studios down in the basement. And we had a little water issue and we ended up having to pull the carpet and everything out of and all the equipment and everything out of the studio. so it definitely cost us an episode this month and it definitely cost you and me having some uh, Skype time. so yeah. Yeah, that was that was going on, but uh, we're gonna catch up. You sent me the
1: picture of that, and I was just like, "Oh my god! It looks like it looks like a bad winter in Vancouver, where the pipes burst."
0: had <laughs> the, yeah, the bare concrete and the green walls, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The green walls were not because of any mildew though or mold. Those, that's the actual paint color.
2: Yeah. Uh, of
0: yeah. of the basement because you'll you'll love this. My uh, although you haven't seen this, I have kind of uh, an Indiana Jones. Star Wars themed basement so the the carpet is like a a beige and then we have these green walls and then I have Indiana Jones movie posters and then still photographs from some of the movies and uh, movie reels and a big fat head of Darth Vader in my basement so that's not in the studio portion of it so yeah that's why it's all nerded out kind of green and I can make it look like uh some sort of archaeologist would feel right at home down here in my basement (laughs) So (laughs) when you have the concrete, don't feel quite as, uh, I was concerned about the echo. So we pulled all the equipment out of here, but you and I are going to catch up a little bit. We're going to talk about our respective whereabouts, uh, since we've not, talk to folks in about a month. And yeah, you and I have an upcoming interview, too, that we're going to do together that we're both geeking over. And then I thought we would talk about, you know, it's the holiday season. And I thought we might talk about some different things we're consuming. Oh, yes. So either or even one of the things I did with with Rob was talk about some of the things I've really enjoyed this year. So, you know, if somebody wants to make a purchase for, you know, you or me or one of their other loved ones that they They could do so around the holiday season if they believe, and that's the the sort of thing that they they like to do. Does that that sound okay? That sounds great. Okay, well, I'm sure if you're like my, so I asked my son, for instance, on that last point, I asked my son, I'm like, give me your Christmas list. And he gives me this Christmas list, and you know this is the time, yep. of, time of the year where the, all the game makers, I know there are things on your list, there are games that you're just chomping at the bit to purchase. Because my son's list included, he had like oh, 20, God, yes. 20 items on his list, and I think 19 of them were games. So I, I know you. I know you have some things you want to consume if you're not already consuming. So uh, we'll do that before we before we do that. Erin Lindsay, what what can we expect out of this conversation?
1: So this was an awesome interview that I got to do with her. I met Erin at uh, New York City Comic Con. She's an author I know because I read I read her Bloodbound series, uh, which is sort of epic epic fantasy, and I, I already liked that. And she happens to live in um, or she lives in New York part part of the year, and so we we keep in touch and i noticed she had an article up on tor.com and the article was called um you know when mary sue failed the Bechtel test and uh, just had to do with it it discussed you know this whole push that there's been to have more inclusive and more representation of female characters in sff and the question of whether or not we've replaced the you know the sort of stereotypical mary sue with something that's even more restrictive and unattainable. Um, and it, mm. so we had a great conversation about that. Um, and we managed to bring into it, um, of course we managed to relate it all back to the World Health Organization's, um, announcement about bacon because it okay. totally relates.
0: Okay. Totally. And, and we've talked about bacon on the show. We have.
1: We actually also talk about what the Bechdel test actually means and how it relates, how you use it, uh, you know, and, and what the proper use is, because it's getting misused a lot when people are talking about fiction. You know, whether or not something fails the Bechdel test doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a piece of you know, valid literature in the feminine or the, you know, the uh, the feminist market or, you know, just mm-hmm. in SFF in general. We also chatted a bit. I made her talk about, um, uh, about a pr- her previous sort of career. Um, she used to be, uh, she used to work for the UN and part of her job working for the UN involved going in choppers to like um, areas like the Congo or, you know, uh, basically areas that we would never think of that you wouldn't typically think of going, and, um, you know, uh, that's when she started writing, was sort of in the evenings in these places where there wasn't really anywhere to go out in the, at night. The article on tour.com and just sort of the timing was really great to have her on the show.
0: No, excellent. Yeah, you're right. Excellent timing. and What what a fabulous background for you to be able to explore in, in talking with her. There... The other interview you and I, or that we're going to be doing forthcoming, that we're both looking forward to, a little bit different. So we've been working to get more science fiction into the into the show. We've been heavy fantasy for the last uh, the last couple months. So I know you in particular, and I've given you kudos because you've been pulling the yeoman's work of a lot of the interviews. But I'm going to be able to to join you for this one, and I I, I am so looking forward to it is the conversation with, uh, with Peter Kleins that's, that's coming up. And you ended up running into him at, you ended up brokering that thing at New York Comic Con too, didn't you?
1: Yeah. At New York City Comic Con, I managed to be on one panel, which is kind of, you know, epic uh, as, as a debut <laughs> author to get on a panel at New York City Comic Con. And the moderator for the panel was Peter Kleins. So he ended up, um, he ended up reading all of our stuff before doing the actual panel so that he had a background in what we did and and sort of knew what we wrote um, so that was hugely flattering but um, i'm i was already a big peter klein's fan because i read i actually i didn't read i listened to the audiobooks for the x heroes
0: oh very cool
1: yeah So so, it was kind of cool that you know we had this moderator. I'm like, you know, and and it's uh, he was asking us all the questions, and I'm like, actually, if if there was a couple of there was a couple of audience questions where I'm like, actually, you should probably ask Peter Klein's about his ex heroes because that is, um, you know, that that was sort of out of everybody on the panel, that was a standout series.
0: Oh, so you were pointing the audience, even though they were asking you, it's like, okay, moderator, you're qualified to speak here, so please speak.
1: You're way you're way more than qualified. I just speak on this, so please. <laughs> But I actually had a chance to chat with him afterwards and go for a beer, and then I was like, you've got to come on the show, uh, or please, please come on the show. So um, he's he's really fun in person.
0: Yeah, no, excellent, and I can't wait to talk to him. So we're going to talk to him largely. Uh, we could certainly talk to him about the X-Heroes, but largely we'll talk to him about his newest release, which came out the summer of this year, uh, so the summer of 2015, and I saw it. I had, had it pegged when it came out in bookstores, I, and I'm currently reading the audible or listening as you said mm-hmm. the audible version which i would encourage uh, folks to to pick up the fold that's the book we're largely going to speak to him about and the narrator while the story is very compelling the narrator i can tell you in the audible version is um Doing a fabulous job with some of the characterization, so uh, yeah. definitely an interesting read, and I can't wait to speak to him. So we've got that coming up a couple weeks, and folks could probably expect that uh, at some point in January. Even though we're going to talk to him, talk to him in December. So New York Comic Con, we've talked about as part of. Your whereabouts. We talked about my basement dwelling as I've been ripping carpet out and drying it out and then replacing it. And I've been doing too much genre related other than doing some reading around. the. I finished mocking Jay so I could see the movie with my kids. How, uh, how did you like it? The book or the movie? Mm, both. So I didn't find the final chapter as reprehensible as my wife did. Okay. Uh, there were a lot, I know there were a lot of people that were disappointed in the third book. And I thought it was tedious to read, and I thought there were a lot of jumps from um, scene and location that Suzanne Collins could have collapsed. And I actually thought that the the movie did a more effective job of handling that by altering the story, uh, altering some of the narrative. The movie suffered a little bit as a result because Joanna Mason, uh, who many people, included, myself included, find a very compelling character uh, and a very interesting you know just a very interesting if not likable character she's not necessarily likable in a snarky sardonic way she's a likable character Uh, She didn't get as much screen time as she did novel time because uh, of the narrative changes. And there were some, without giving too much away for folks that haven't read the final version or haven't seen the movie yet, there were some other things around some character motivation that, you know, is always so much harder to pull off in a movie uh, around the love triangle choice that are better done in the book then they're done in the movie. But ultimately, I thought the movie was very, very satisfying. And I thought they did some nice things, like I said, in collapsing the narrative. There are some nice set pieces from an action sequence standpoint and some nice twists that they held true to the book that I thought were well done in the movie. So I, I thought it was, a, as as they've said, a satisfying conclusion. I would, I would agree. But there are some things where I can't say which is... I, I, Probably would even say the movie superior just because some of the things they did around collapsing some of the narratives to make it a tighter storyline. But other than that, genre related, I haven't been doing doing a ton there uh, because, as you know, I was uh, doing repairs. Yeah. So, but you've been around. You've been out. You, you've attempted to get out into the world. <laughs> And, yeah, I'm, and, I'm
1: making up, I'm making up, I've, well, I've been making up for it this week, but... Um,
0: and, uh, uh, and the last couple of weeks, too, so you, you want to start with your trip to Portland, or your guests at yeah. and, and Functional Nerds?
1: Uh, let's start with Portland. So, <laughs> so I I have some lovely friends in Portland um, who invited me to go down and stay with them, and um, they live in some, you know, one of the really sort of cool districts, um, and uh, <coughs> uh, for Oracon as well. <laughs> so, I was also a pen analyst at Oricon. And I have to say out of all the conventions I've ever gone to, this is probably the one where I met the least amount of people. And the reason is, is because I got down there Thursday night and it started off awesome where we went out for cider at one of the cider houses. And they've got like, you know, 60 different types of ciders on tap and you could do a sampler. So I did a sampler and then I had my own cider and it was wonderful, you know, and then I chatting with them, it was like, oh, well, there's, you know, breweries around here, et cetera, et cetera. So we went to the convention on Friday and I did my first panel and that was a lot of fun. And I noticed I started feeling tired, you know, and uh, I'm like, oh, well, you know, we'll skip the party. Tonight, because I I bet it's just traveling, and that way I'll be nice and fresh for Saturday. And by Friday night, I realized it wasn't that I was tired; it was that I was coming down with a cold. My like second day in Portland, <laughs> so I got through the rest of the convention. Uh, luckily, it was not a horrible, horrible, horrible cold. It was it was pretty easy to, to you know to to um, uh, it was easily handled, but um, yeah, it definitely cut my beer drinking um, to uh, nothing.
0: So you could manage the symptoms and the symptoms did not, uh, the the way you managed the symptoms did not include brown liquid.
1: No, no, because I thought that would be bad. <laughs> I've done that before, Brett, and the result is usually it makes the cold much, much
3: worse. Yeah.
1: I remember there was one convention I was coming back from and I was getting sick the night before. I was getting sick while I was at the, I was like, Oh God damn it. I'm coming down with a cold and I'm at the airport and actually it was in Portland too. And, um, the last time I went to a convention in Portland. And, um, so I ended up there, they had like, um, you know, craft beer at the airport and I'm just like, all right, I'm having a couple of beers and the cold was much worse. So this time (laughs) I did not do that. Um, but, but my last day in Portland, I did go to, um, one of the grocery stores and I picked up, I had, I had one of the guys, uh, help me pick out a couple of different types of, um, uh, craft brew so that I could bring those back to Canada.
0: What did you bring back? Do you remember?
1: Um, Hop Valley, Alpha Centauri, Imperial India Pale Ale. I'm an IPA fan. So, uh, that was lovely. Um, It was about 9% alcohol, and uh, it was wonderful. And the second one was an F-Frime IPA as well.
0: Oh, man. You know when you need to go down there is when I was there. (laughs) So, well, not saying you can – that would be a trick for a different discussion around time travel. But what I meant to say is you should go there in late September when they – it's all the – if you're an IPA fan, the fresh hopped. As a matter of fact, they, oh, were having, yeah, yeah, yeah. they were having a fresh hopped festival, and some of those beers were so lovely. So, okay, so Portland didn't go as well other than you came home with some stellar beer, but there have been some other cool things you were doing. I had mentioned to folks last episode that you had a bit of a guest stint because I've even been, not avoiding social media, but just, you know, when you're, you know, I'm not going to be tweet. I guess I could have been tweeting po- pictures of my Progress in the basement. Uh, I've been on social media, but I was on a little bit to catch that uh, you had a guest in at Functional Nerds.
1: Yeah, so John Anilio, uh contacted me uh, because Patrick's. Uh, so Pat- so it's Patrick and um,
2: John. Yeah, uh,
1: Patrick Hester and John Anelia show, and um, they um, they've had me on as a guest before, and I guess they also are, are familiar with our show. And um, Patrick's mom uh, was quite sick. Uh, And so he wasn't able to do um, uh, three of their episodes. And so John contacted me to see if I would be willing to uh, be a sub guest host. So um, I I like their show. And so, of course, you know, I jumped at the chance. So we did three different. um, So we did three episodes on a Saturday. And uh, it it was it's a different kind of show than what we do. But it was a lot of fun. Uh, So we I. Oh, gosh, I can't. Uh, all the all the guys are up there. I know Victor Milan's coming up next. Okay, um, is there have been two so far, and then the third one we did was Victor Milan, who does the Dinosaur Lords. That'll be the next one coming up, uh, and uh, he's one of George R. R. Martin's uh, writing buddies. Yeah. So <laughs> and so Vic- that, that was a fantastic episode. Yeah.
0: And we've had uh, we've had Victor on our show. Uh, that was something the the Grim Tidings folks. So Rob and Philip. Ended up that's the guest stint that they did having Victor on our show. Um, Brian Dunaway,
1: that was fantastic because he also has a podcast and he was quite, he he was very fun. I I highly recommend people check out his um, check out the episode that we did with him, uh, and as well so Travis Brian, Travis Langley okay, Travis Doctor Travis Langley oh Doctor so,
0: Travis Langley okay
1: Doctor so he um so Doctor Travis Langley what we talked about with him was um his new book on. On just sort of the psychology of star wars so he's he's a psychologist and he that's what he teaches and so he also does these um book series that where he gets other you know sort of writers and i guess uh, experts in the field to sort of come in and do various chapters and they talk about the psychology of george r, r. Martin's series you know the game of thrones they've done um oh have they done the walking dead or is that coming up i think the walking dead's coming up okay. but they do a whole bunch of them and uh, yeah so that
0: was we talked about star wars All right, excellent. And I actually have two copies of that on my shelf. Very cool. Very, very time talking about a good and timely uh, holiday gift. That might be one of them, right? Yes. I'm sure you guys talked about beer, too, because John, I subscribe to John. John does a nice kind of weekly five things, and yes. he's always recommending a beer. Uh, so if you're a beer drinker, John is uh, somebody, I think, shares that same affinity that with, with you and me. And so I think we chat on Twitter occasionally about what beer we're drinking
1: well I I was chatting I because I know you were you were dealing with your um, your repairs your basement <laughs> but um, I, I was actually chatting with John and uh, we we were sort of talking you know because we all like beer um, we were maybe thinking of you know I, I, well I was gonna ping you about the idea of doing a joint episode well, with we, the functional nerds where we chat about beer
0: and we books could, we, we could certainly do that yeah. Beer-inspired books, or beer where beer is a prominent part of the narrative, I think we or could call books
1: all. where beer is needed
2: in order <laughs> to finish
0: them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there, are, I've got a few of those. Actually, I have one of those that my wife converted into art. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I'm, you know? <laughs> I'm not. I'm
1: not. I don't actually, no.
0: <laughs> she, said, she said, what book can you donate to this art project? And I said, here you go. It's a lovely <laughs> piece of book art that I have hanging on my wall. So what else? Anything else you got you've got going on or anything in the, the any conventions forthcoming? No,
1: God no. I'm I'm so I'm in <laughs> deadline. I'm I'm in like deadline central right now. So I am, I have a novel that's due. Um, I have a manuscript, um, which is the, which are the page proofs for, um, for Kincaid Strange and, um, anybody who knows me and, and, and you know this about me now, Brent, but my copy edit sucks. So I'm the last person on the face of the planet you want looking at like the copy edits or the page proofs, because the chances of me picking up like a missing and, or it, or as, or is it's, it's minuscule. Like it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, maybe I'll pick it up, but I, I wouldn't
2: count on it.
1: Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I have them in front of me and I'm, I'm sort of working on those, but I'm also working on the next, the next novel in the series, um, which is due soonish. Um, and then I saw um, that Owl and the Electric Samurai has gone up on Amazon for pre-order, which is awesome. I'm very happy about that. They've got the description up there, um, and then the date, which is July 18th, which means I also need another owl novel done, um, you know, soon. So I'm working on all
0: those. Oh my goodness! What- <laughs> it's
1: good. It's good. It's 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 a totally. It looks scary because it's like, oh my god, that's six months away. But that's for the ebook. Yeah, okay. um, you know the physical book is not then to the following fall or January or something like that. So, so it's it's totally all doable. You know, with with my writing schedule and my turnaround. But it's you sort of start looking at them and it's like, oh my god, I've got deadlines.
0: Well, you you and I have a, we haven't really talked about uh, owl from that standpoint. So, do you have? The Owl series is obviously going to go beyond committing trilogy. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's gone to four books now. Four books. And four it, books
1: is on schedule. Uh, on schedule, and hopefully more.
0: Okay. All right. So I didn't, and I didn't know if that's what you had as part of the agreement with the publisher, the contractor, if if. if it's one of those no things, that right?
1: was a second that was a second contract second contract uh, okay. so originally it's two books and then they wanted two more which I'm more than happy to write because it's fun um and audible also signed on for all four books so um that's so right. I'm I'm locked in for all of them and then I've, now, I now I think it well it's, it's it's public knowledge now but um my my narrator is kind of a star-studded narrator on audible so um Christa Romano who's Kim
0: Possible so there's going to be more books which is great all right that's awesome so that's available you said for pre-order now on Amazon
1: yeah the um yeah Owl and the Electric Samurai is and then the Audible just went on pre-order which is great
0: my mother's birthday is coming up here in a couple weeks so (laughs) can't mention Owl without a reference to my mother so at this point (laughs) they're intrinsically linked
1: oh that's funny
0: so I know what to get her for her birthday well speaking of things we're we're consuming if you, if you were to buy buy somebody for, uh, something for the birthday what are you enjoying right now You're going to
1: laugh at me there's the trailer for uh the new uh Captain America movie
0: Oh the Civil War
1: The Civil War looks movie. so good You
0: you're just watching that on a perpetual loop
1: what are you doing No no not on a perpetual <laughs> loop just you know five or six times and and so I'm actually so one of the things I'm actually thinking of doing is going back and watching the other movies, but I think they're off oh. Netflix in Canada. So that would be one. Um, okay. I you know, some of the Marvel stuff. Actually, do you know what I'd love to do is go back and read some of the comics. So Marvel yeah. Unlimited mm-hmm. would be an awesome gift for anybody. Um, do you know what Marvel Unlimited oh, is? Oh yeah,
0: I do. It's their yeah. it's their uh, their digital subscription model where you basically have access to, if not all, most most of their catalog. It's their e publishing platform. And I've tried I've trialed it. Growing up, I was a huge Marvel fan, particularly around the X-Men books, Captain America in particular. I actually, matter of fact, if I had seen you in Spokane, I had packed it anyway, but you weren't there, so I didn't wear it, I don't think. I have my Captain Canada t-shirt. Oh, that's uh, funny. <laughs> oh yeah, a friend of mine my friend of mine loves really odd, bizarre t-shirts and so I uh, adore my Captain America t-shirt so much, and I wear it at conventions generally. It's an easy way to spot me, although me and 300 other people, right? Uh, so he, he got me the Captain Canada t-shirt, because there aren't many people that are wearing that around. Um, but I have, like, the the death of Captain America and a lot of the Civil War books. So going back and, and reading some of that narrative, although what the cinematic universe has done is they've combined some of these unrelated narratives you know, yeah. through the Avengers, what have you. And they they figured out a way to cobble them together because the Civil War narrative is supposed to go uh, together with some of the Avengers narrative, yeah. obviously, if, if folks have watched the trailer. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I know what it is. That was my long-winded way of saying, heck yeah, I know what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that, <laughs> but I, you know, if people are looking for gifts. That's one. If they have like Avengers or, you know, Marvel fans, that's definitely one
0: to consider. I would double down on that. Uh, from, if we're going to talk about Marvel and like things we're consuming and you, you were talking about catching up on Netflix too. Yep. Is that if you have a friend and they have a streaming service and they're not they're not subscribing to Netflix, uh, help them out. Yeah, I think, I think Netflix actually does sell gift cards or get the, them a subscription to Netflix because uh, as I was going through email too too much the other night, I had no idea. And with all the issues I've been dealing with, I had no idea that Netflix had released uh, Jessica Jones. Jessica Jones. Oh yeah. my. God, is it phenomenal. I've watched two the first two episodes and it took me knowing that I've got to earn, li- I have mouths to feed and I have to earn a livelihood to make sure that I can continue to feed said mouths that I did not binge watch that whole series. I almost pulled the, my spouse is going to kill me, but I don't care. And I'm going to watch this whole thing without her the other night. Do yourself, your friend a favor Or a family member, a favor, and get them a Netflix account because they're also going to do a Luke Cage show too.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. It's well, Luke Cage is in Jessica Jones Jones. right now, so you know. um, But but here's the thing about Netflix. I'm going to double down on this one, and that's (laughs) that they don't care about advertisers, and this is really critical when it comes to making Marvel movies right now, and that their or Marvel, you know, TV series, and that. If you look at Daredevil and you look at Jessica Jones compared to Everything else that is being, you know, released on your traditional networks where they do care about advertisers and what the advertisers think of the show and what kind of messages could be sent out, um, you know, if their products are advertising the shows. Netflix has so much more freedom.
2: Mm -hmm. Like
1: you look at Daredevil and you look at Jessica Jones and they've got so much more artistic freedom Mm -hmm. that it it makes them better shows. They're able to do more are they grittier? Are they a little darker? Sure. But Marvel's been doing that for years. Like it's more reflective of the comics. I think, yeah. you know, I, I was wondering if daredevil was maybe a one-off and not a chance. Yeah. No, nah, just Jessica, Jessica's just as good.
0: Well, I, there are a number of advantages and you've hit on, uh, hit on several. I think, you know, like you said, they, begin, they can be truer to the source material, you know, without having to worry about the commercial viability. Not only that, can they be truer to the source material from the standpoint of the, the content, but also, the again, the making sure that the story gets represented truer to the source material in the overall narrative. Yeah. S- similar to Game of Thrones or something where you actually, you don't have to compress everything. Civil War was a mini series of multiple comic books. And so it'll be interesting to go back to the, you know, while I'm excited for the movie, it'll be interesting to see how they weave that into the overall cinematic universe
2: yeah. and
0: what shortcuts they take. Um, yep. Cause they're not, there's no way they're going to be able to capture it all in movies, but yeah. in a 12 to fourteen episode season, they can certainly make sure they cover a lot of that ground, or more more of that ground certainly than they would be able to do so in a movie. So, oh yeah, you and I, you and I are locked in on some of the same things. What yeah. what what else? What else do are you uh, consuming?
1: Faith Hunters, Jane Yellow Rock series. It's an urban fantasy. First off, she is a shape-shifting Cherokee vampire hunter, and the series starts off where she is hired by the vampires of New Orleans to do the hunting for them. And she's got a couple of favorite you know, shapes that she takes or animal, animal forms she takes. And I don't want to spoil it by telling you what they are. So um, you know, it's urban fantasy. And that's, that's where I write. So that's one of the areas I read. But one of the things I love about Faith is that she does um, – there are stereotypes in the series – And she breaks a lot of the stereotypes. You're getting a different kind of urban fantasy story. Some people don't like it. I love it. Um, And she's a New York Times bestseller, so a lot of people are liking it.
0: All right. Excellent. The other thing that I'm gearing up, I don't know if you're gearing up for it, but I'm certainly gearing up for it, is Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Oh, yeah. And so I'm reading uh, Wendig's Aftermath.
1: How do you like it?
0: I'm not... That far into it, I'm kind of where I am with the fold. I'm about 25% of the way into it. Any book I read, generally, I'm in 100 pages before I make any sort of real judgment. So I'm cautiously optimistic. You know, I've read a lot of the negative reviews, and I think some of that's around expectations of uh, character treatment. I've heard some things around uh, kind of the jumping narrative, but at this point, I'm I'm trying to brush all that aside and just trying to put it with the rest of the canon and figuring out you know essentially how it'll bridge kind of the rest of the can bridge the rest of the canon so and again i put it aside because i picked back up mocking jay but that's what i that's what i'm into now and hopefully after force awakens i can read the book about uh, star wars the psychology of star wars too that you had yeah. mentioned from dr langley because i actually had that on this the top i put that on because it's so timely i put that on the uh, the top of my to be read pile and i was like okay this is such a curiosity i i have to i have to check it out
1: and there's one more star wars thing that's come out very very timely which is battlefront
0: Yep, the game
1: the game <laughs> the game so i i think during not right now but i think over the christmas season um steve and i will have to uh We'll have to be trying that
0: one. Yeah, that's on my son's list of games. I I made him prioritize um, <laughs> prioritizing games. <laughs> his game his game list because my my pockets are not deep enough, nor is the rest of the family to uh, be able to purchase all the games that uh, that he wants. Because I know just off the top of my head, he's got uh, Assassin's Creed, the newest yep. one of that, and he's got Battlefront, and then he wants a season pass for Black and then oh my gosh! There's a—is there another one called Fallout Four? Yeah, we're playing that right now. Okay, he he wants that one. He wants a Mario Maker game. Those are oh my gosh! Those are just the ones I can rattle off on top of my head.
1: I has he played Fallout Three or has he played Fallout New Vegas?
0: I no, I can tell you. Well, he might. We don't own it. He he might have played it, but we don't own it.
1: So one one tip I can give you on the game front and uh, this is something that that we found and it's not actually um, I'm chatting with other adventures and sci-fi publishing people um, about an upcoming review about um, Fallout 4 One of the things that you know, a lot of people are saying it's a good game. Like, no, no doubt about it. It's a fun game. But um, the thing, and, and this is something you get when you start, you know, when you start reaching the third or fourth or fifth game in a series is that whereas Fallout New Vegas did some really fun, cool stuff with the storyline and with the gameplay and, you know, with the, uh, with the open world. Um, Fallout 4 isn't it's a good competent game but it's not doing anything spectacular it's not doing anything new and when you've got a blockbuster when you've got a game set up as a blockbuster you expect something you you expect something to you know support the whole blockbuster name tag or, or price tag that it's been given
0: you expect and, some sort of innovation or yes. yes. Or yeah. some sort of unique qu- twist or character development, I, you know, because that's something my son and I've talked about with the upcoming Uncharted game. Yeah, because that uh, was all, that was you know all right. Uh, he the the Uncharted oh I forget what it's called, but it's essentially it's a bundle pack of all the prior games in the PS4 for the PS4 with the beta of the new Uncharted game. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? You want me to shell out what just so you can get a beta? Because you have all the other games. You have all
1: the other games.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you better, that's where we had a lesson in prioritization. You better factor that into your prioritization because you may not be getting another game as a result of you have to have the same games you already have. But we were talking about that whole notion of a series and what his concerns were and what he was excited about with the series. And he's, you know, he, for a 13 year old, he's been following all the news. He's been so excited for this game. He's been following the news and he said, I'm kind of scared because he said, I'm kind of scared that it's not going to meet the expectation and he said, I think the only way they're going to be able to meet the expectation is he thinks, you know, the character I love so much, Sully, is going to have to die. Like something momentous is going to have to happen in that game for it to warrant kind of that blockbuster notion, right? Even with Star Wars, we're going to have a a, a major character death has been the rumor anyway, right?
1: Yeah, (laughs) or or at least there's going to be, you know, it's it's not even necessarily a character death. Like, that's sort of the storyline version of it, but... You know, it's it's just that there's another thing that comes into play with these blockbusters, and that's that it becomes too big. It's kind of like that whole concept of too big to fail, where all of a sudden, you know, they had this, you know, obscure science fiction fantasy game. Um, you know, or, you know, in the case of the Uncharted game, it's like an action adventure game that became, you know, a, a blockbuster and people wanted the second one and then the third one, and then it's like, Well, damn, um, we need to come up with the, the, the next one and yeah when the hell did this start making so much money and my god now we need all of marketing all of sales and the VPs involved whereas before it was just a group of people making a game um, or you know some side group of you know um, designers and writers putting together a game and the problems that you see when that happens is that you've got too many cooks in the kitchen and all of a sudden everybody's involved and marketing's involved and they you know oh well you can't have this happen because that doesn't test well with this particular group of people and we can't have this because It doesn't test well when we try and sell it. And so you end up with a good game, but it ends up being competent because you've taken all, you've ended up shearing all the edges off of it.
0: Yeah. Too many cooks. You're you're proverbial, too many cooks in the kitchen ends up spoiling the dish. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah, And I think that's, yeah, that's definitely a concern when you have these. um, Well, you had that with the last Avengers movie. You did. Absolutely. And And that's why Josh Whedon was like, I'm out. And, and why I ended up purchasing the, the Blu-ray edition because I, some of the deleted scenes make up. The, you're sitting there going, why is Thor dipping himself in the water? This makes yeah. no sense to me yeah. whatsoever. And then you're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. If you've read the comic books, you know what the heck's going on. But that's like, that was so long ago. That was 20 years, 25 years ago when I read Yeah. So, yeah, I know that, that makes sense. Any any other things you're consuming or that you would recommend?
1: I'm really, really enjoying, and and I've had them on the show before, but I've been reading the third book in Patrick Weeks' series, um, Uh. The Rogues of the Republic, and it's kind of like, if you missed the episode uh, with, with them, it's kind of if Terry Pratchett met video games- With some, you know, a lot of humor and and it's if Terry Pratchett were maybe to do a a Bioware game like a a Dragon Age game, you might get something like this, Um, and I love it. I it's it's uh, my favorite character is the unicorn, and if you've ever read um, Peter S. Beagle's the um, the Last Unicorn, it's the Lady Amalthea, but just gone so 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 wrong. Uh, and it makes for a fantastic story So I've been reading the third one Very cool. I actually, I, I think I have to say Because you Americans have very funny rules When it comes to books and things They actually, I, I bought the first two in the series Because I liked them And then I was given a copy of the third one And apparently I have to say that For various regulations and things like that That I was given the third copy for free Yeah,
0: yeah we do, we have all those weird uh, FTC regulations That's it. That you have That's to pay it. it. Yeah, yes. that you have to pay attention, yeah. pay attention to well, the thing I will recommend as the last recommendation, there was a documentary that the whole family and I enjoyed that is uh, real world, but also somewhat genre related. And it had to do with, uh, and folks that are on social media re- might recall, a couple of years ago, San Francisco turned the city of San Francisco, worked with the Make-A-Wish Foundation to turn a portion of the city into Gotham city. And oh, cool. so, yeah. So that for, uh, for a child and there's this great documentary that the whole family that we watched over Thanksgiving, the U S Thanksgiving holiday called bat kid begins the wish heard around the world. And it ju- the documentary just came out this year and it tells the story about this, uh, six year old boy who has leukemia And he was eligible for uh, a wish through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and they asked him what uh, he could do as part of his wish, and he said, I want to be Batman. And (laughs) so they had to figure out how to make that work, and they worked with the city of San Francisco, and the thing blew out of control in so many wonderful ways, to the point where the city of San Francisco probably received more attention through its acts for this child, and they basically created a, uh, a narrative for this child to run through, and he had he was Bat Kid, and and they ended up lining up a, a Batman uh, that he kind of followed through this narrative through the city and saved the day as part of his wish, but the city of San Francisco ultimately said they saw more benefit, I think, from a marketing standpoint uh, around the, you know, around the city than they would for from any convention. And it's just a wonderful and touching story and an inspiring story around hopes and dreams and not losing that inspiration that kind of drives any one of us. So and and it's something the whole I know my whole family, my, my kids, when we look to watch it. My 13 year old son can be rather, he's reached, you know, teenage years. He can be rather jaded, but, uh, it engaged all of us and was really kind of a fabulous um, real life story that I think is is worth, if not a purchase, definitely a rental. A great story and a lot of fun. And for anybody that's following social media too, there's there's a there's a subtext of um, you know just social media and how things can. Uh, beli- I'm not going to use the word viral, but. Uh, just just grow and blow completely out of proportion, like I said, in so many wonderful ways. Very cool. Be my last recommendation. So I think we've hit on the, the major discussion items for, uh, we need to stop doing this monthly. We've got to get back to kind of a weekly or by the Yeah, schedule. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> well, don't it's me. It's me. And that, it's and, that, and that
1: way we can talk about beer we can't, and what beers we're drinking.
0: That's right. I I am drinking, I can tell you, drinking Founders Porter right now. As the, the months get colder, my beer gets darker.
1: So the one I'm drinking right now is called Blitzin. And it is from uh, Steamworks, and it's their seasonal triple Belgian beer. It's quite good.
0: It sounds good. I'm going to try a local quadijo later. It's a uh, Belgian ale with um, ancho peppers. Yeah, it's very very tasty. Anything else that you can think of before we uh, – that you want to mention before we sign off?
1: No, no. It's just that we've got more interviews coming up. we got some more sci-fi. We've got the space opera one I'm doing coming up. An interview that I'm doing with a, with a space opera author. So we're going to do a space opera show. So we're going to talk about the genre. And, um, yeah, no, we've got lots
0: of stuff. We definitely yeah. do. We'll have a couple more episodes and then we'll definitely – I know we at least have another two, maybe three episodes – after the new year coming so until we talk to you again we might be able to sneak in another episode before uh before the holidays but if not hope everybody has a wonderful uh holiday season and until next time take care
3: bye guys
1: Adventures in Sci Fi Publishing, this is Christy Cherish. I'm flying solo again. Today I'm chatting with Aaron Lindsay, author of the Bloodbound series, a fantasy epic that follows Alex Black, a warrior bent on saving her kingdom at almost all costs. Aaron also writes the Nicholas Lenoir series under the name E.L. Tetenser both male and female protagonists, which is one of the things I'm really excited to talk to Erin about today, as she recently had an article up on Tor.com, which had a heck of a lot of traffic, many of you might've read it, um, called When Mary Sue Failed the Bechdel Test. A look at the question of whether we've opened the doors for more inclusive female protagonists in fantasy and sci-fi, or whether we've just swapped one unachievable stereotype for another. I also had the chance to finally meet Aaron at New York City Comic Con, where we were able to have a chance to chat and have a beer. For our tally that we've been doing, Aaron also likes beer. Erin, thank you for joining me. Before we get into the female protagonist discussion, uh, how about you tell our listeners about you and your novels? Well, as you mentioned, I write two different series. Um,
3: the first series, the Nicolas Lenoir series, is one that, um, that was my first series, so Dark Walker, the first one in that series, was you my debut pronou- novel.
1: You pronounced that so much better than I did. <laughs>
3: Well, uh, so I pronounced it the French way, and the reason I did that um, here's here's a juicy tidbit. Darkwalker actually has its roots in the Ravenloft world, it was a Wizards of the Coast property back when it was TSR. And oh then, yeah, yeah, uh, it was, and then Wizards re-released it um, in around two thousand five. Well, no, that's not quite right. Anyway, somewhere around two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So I actually originally had a contract to do a Ravenloft novel, and then they canceled the line. So that was a bummer. But what it did lead to was me pulling out the two main characters from my Ravenloft idea – um, and, and pulling them, putting them into Darkwalker. And Ravenloft, one of the features of it is that a person from the real world, who it's a kind of a portal thing, mm-hmm. ends up in another space. So Nicolas Lenoir, whom anyone who's read the book will be totally unsurprised to learn, was originally French. So that's where that came from. But anyway, yeah, I think the most important thing to know about me is that um, for the past 10 years, I've been in aid worker and political analyst so i've been all over the world and so most of my books have been written from extremely exotic locations sometimes under very
1: exotic circumstances i remember when you told me that i was kind of shocked because you you did some work with the u.n correct
3: yeah uh, some I, I was 11 years with the
1: u.n wow well I, now I'm old to say that per, i know i know um I get the same thing every time I talk about science and stuff. What I, I like, I know with um, I know with your your job and stuff. There's obviously some what well, with your previous job. There's obviously some um, confidential stuff. What can you tell us about? I'm fascinated that you worked with the UN.
3: Yeah, I mean, it probably sounds sexier than it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it had its sexy moments, but like most jobs, it was highly email dominated uh, in in the in the main. But, um, but Dark Walker, for example, was written largely in the Central African Republic. Um, I was, get your, get your Google Maps out, people, we're about to go deep. It was northwestern Central African Republic in a town called Bosangoa. And yeah, so that's where I wrote a lot of that book. Uh, Bloodbound. <laughs> Bloodbound, which was never actually intended to be a novel, really, honestly. It was a writing exercise to begin with. That was written in South Sudan. I found myself in South Sudan, as you do. Hopped up on bourbon and painkillers, which is a whole other story. (laughs) Bopping around in peacekeeping helicopters by day and cranking out this story by night, which, as I said, was just something to keep me busy because, you know... The nightlife in Juba leaves something to be desired. There's, it's not the safest place to go uh, to go wandering around. So a lot of a lot of my writing was done because I was in places where you literally kind of couldn't go out. Yeah, in a social capacity, you'd be sort of on you know inside your inside your guesthouse or whatever, and going out was if you could do it was really a production. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's not like you could just go strolling out your door and wander around, and even if you did, there was nothing to do. So, a lot of writing done under those circumstances. And Bloodbound was just something I was doing while I was waiting on uh, feedback from my agent on Darkwalker. And when I finished it, I was like, "Huh, this was so much fun to write. Maybe it's fun to read." And I <laughs> sent it to my agent, and he, and he liked it. So,
1: you, you sort of talked about why why you started, you know, writing writing these novels because you know doing. Uh doing stuff for the UN, that's what you do in your evenings. Um, What catalyzed you from that point to sort of go, okay, I'm going to find an agent, I'm going to try and get this published?
3: Yeah, you know, I think... I mean, i've always I've always been a writer ever since I was a kid. Um, in fact, I recently had the hilarious experience of I was um visiting my mom and she dragged out what she referred to as a time capsule, but was in fact, a box of junk. <laughs> basically <laughs> stuff that she'd been saving for my whole life, including like arts and crafts and stuff. And I found a bunch of stories I'd written in there as a kid, which was a delight, especially because most of them were illustrated. Yeah very carefully illustrated. Um, anyway, so I had forgotten actually how much writing I'd done as a kid, but it was always a, a hobby thing until we moved to Geneva. Um, and this was back in like 2002 or whatever. And well, I'll be totally blunt. I couldn't find a job. I was sure I'd be able to find a job in Geneva. I spoke French. I had a you know graduate degree in international relations. This will be easy. Mm-hmm. I could not find a job in Geneva. So, I started writing as a full time thing, and I think I started taking it seriously because I needed to take something seriously. Mm-hmm. I needed to get up in the morning, produce something, and have a goal in mind and that's kind of where it came from. It was a very slow process because as much as you know um, as much as having nothing to do in the bush gives you some time to write, mostly it's twelve, fourteen hour days, seven days a week so those leisure hours are few and far between, mm-hmm. as dull as they are. Yeah. So it took me a really long time to get to the point where I had something to sell. But, um, but yeah, that's how it came about.
1: One of the things I wanted to talk about is with your, um, your recent tour article. And some you've done some other posts as well on female protagonists. What was the inspiration for that, to put together that article?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I know you warned me you were going to ask this question, and I started thinking about it, and the funny <laughs> thing is, I'm not totally sure, but I think, I think it went something like this. I was not the sort of person as a reader who ever read reviews. So I would be more interested in the metadata. If I thought I liked the look of a book, I might go to Amazon or or whatever and look at sort of how overall it was doing. You know, out of 150 reviews, it got an average of four and a half stars. Maybe I would sort of skim the the most critical review and the most positive review, and that was really it. Yeah. Um, and I and I didn't follow any blogs. And of course, that changed when I became a writer, Um, especially when my first novel came out. I made, we were talking about this offline earlier, the very rookie mistake. I was actually
1: going to say that, yeah.
3: The very rookie mistake of reading all the reviews as they came out. And it wasn't so much, especially because my first book, of course, was a male protagonist. So it wasn't my own reviews that started me down this path. But as I became more curious about reviews in general, Mm -hmm. um, about bloggers reviews, but also the sort of things that you would find on Amazon or Goodreads, I started reading reviews of people whose books that I loved so that I could sort of see what are you know what are the haters saying about the stuff that I love do I love them for the same reasons that other people love them and it was in doing that and I realized that many of my favorites had female protagonists and I started to feel and I think lots of readers will will um, recognize this feeling I started to feel really defensive on behalf of my favorite books that people were just they 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 hated some of these characters and they hated them for all the wrong reasons and that really started to make me annoyed. And then it really, it wasn't even so much books.
1: Honestly, it was reviews of movies in particular that really stoked the fires for me. How so? Or or can you think, can you think of one, one movie where that sort of
3: Well, the one that catalyzed the tour post was the Avengers Age of Ultron. And I hadn't seen the film at the time that I initially took umbrage to the the discussion around it. And And I should say out of the gate, I don't have any particular attachment to that franchise. I really enjoyed the first film didn't much care for the second film. And and there were definitely some issues with the second film from the perspective of particularly a very tone-deaf joke about Prima Nocta and so forth. So I'm not defending it as a, as a work of art or as a film, but I thought a lot of the criticisms of the Black Widow character in particular were really wrong-headed. And what bothered me most about it is that it was really people who thought or appeared to think that they were making a feminist critique of the Black Widow character that I thought, we're actually in some ways making very anti-feminist critiques of the black widow character. And that really, I was like, you know what I'm beginning, that reminds me of so many of these reviews that I read. And I, I felt like I started to sense this pattern.
1: And it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm looking at your article now for, for our listeners. I'm actually going to post this up. Um, I'm going to post uh, a link to the com article, uh, that, um, that Aaron wrote, but I, I'm sort of looking at it here and I, I, there's, there's one sort of quote that I thought summed up the, um, you know, sort of that that idea, and I think a lot of writers who are uh, female or male who are writing female protagonists are feeling this. You know, in some, when crafting a winning female protagonist balance is key. Like, say, walking a tightrope over a bed of pikes, writhing with asps. Yeah,
3: a little Indiana Jones in there for you. I
1: liked that, yes. It was very nice. <laughs> but, but it's gotten to, but I, I, you know, that, that was something that, um, and we sort of chatted about this topic at, you know, um, uh, in New York City Comic Con as well, but, um, you know, that idea of it's, there's so much pressure now to produce a, uh, produce a, Female protagonist that hits all of these feminist type notes. For example, the Bechdel test, or um, you know, the idea of in a plot structure, and and these are things you you bring up too in the article, like um, that are all brought up in the article. You know, the idea as well of um, uh, whether or not the prote- female protagonist is rescued, whether or not she's the chosen one. You know, and it's gotten to the point where it's almost you know, I wonder, and I, I sort of hinted at this at the beginning of our at beginning of the the podcast, but. Are we getting to a point where we've taken one stereotype of the female who gets, you know, rescued and is, you know, secondary to the the male protagonist with just something almost as damaging and something almost as narrow?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think and that's kind of the point that I make in the article is I think in a, to a large extent we, we've come full circle Um, and it's we're not holding up the traditionalist ideal of what a woman should be, but we're still holding up, uh, an an ideal of somebody's about what a woman should be. And that's not empowerment. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, that's not equality. That's still, you know, holding up society's expectations, albeit different expectations about what a woman should be and demanding that every female protagonist mirror this and mirror it perfectly. And that's really, for me, uh, that's not the way to promote diversity. That's the the way to promote a different type of stereotype, but it's still a stereotype. And so really kind of, you know, reflecting on that. And it's not that... To come back to Black Widow, uh, I think it's a good example just because I think it's quite familiar to people. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm suggesting there are no valid reasons for criticizing that character. Um I myself am not a huge fan of Black Widow simply because there's not enough meat on the bones. Mm-hmm. i There isn't enough to that character to really get your hooks into and 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 be excited about in my opinion um and that and that's a valid criticism of it, and interestingly. And again, this is where these perverse incentives that I mentioned in the the article come into play. I strongly suspect that the backstory that was put into the Avengers, that second film, was in part to flesh out that character because unlike a lot of the other Avengers, she hasn't had her own standalone film. Mm -hmm. She hasn't had her chance to tell us her story. And it feels to me like Joss Whedon was conscious of that and wanted to give her a story. But because he didn't tell the story that people thought they wanted or were promised or were expecting they kind of shat all over it and to me it's like well what kind of message does that send it almost it's like it's more trouble than it's worth you're not going to get it right so why try
1: and and it's kind of you know it's kind of like and i I feel this we we sort of chatted because um because we both write characters who who have come come up to criticism in some cases and it's funny because you know i have read um i i love you i've read your books. books yeah that's the point if they're female and anyone's read the book, they're going to come under criticism. Damn yeah, indeed. yeah. And it's, but it's kind of like that, you know. For a writer, it's kind of like it's. It, you almost feel sometimes when you're writing a female protagonist that you're. It's like looking at fashion magazines where they've been so photoshopped to a particular degree, where it's well, that's no longer an, anything attainable in real life anymore. It's it's a port. You know, it's a picture. It's a photograph. It's you know. And some people think it's art, but. It's no longer actually anything represent, it's no longer representative of what a real female looks like. It's aspects of it. Yeah. And it's inspired by it. And I, I kind of feel like, in some ways, female protagonists in movies and fiction and literature, they've all come under that particular type of restraint as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think part of the, the tightrope that I mentioned is that, you know, on the one hand, there's an expectation, a general literary expectation that, that a character be believably flawed. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, you want, we want, we demand that our female protagonists are shining examples of empowered womankind, but not too shining, please, because otherwise she's a Mary Sue. And I talk about this at quite some length in the article. I I really, I've grown to completely loathe the concept of Mary Sue, not necessarily as it was originally um, created in, in the context of fan fiction, but it's just been used so much and its definition has been so stretched it's been used so indiscriminately to apply to just about every female character out there mm-hmm. that it's basically in my opinion become almost shorthand for this female character is too awesome which is wrong on the face of it but especially this is sci-fi fantasy folks yeah <laughs> there's no such thing as too awesome there is no too awesome when it comes to you know superheroes and and male protagonists and we don't we don't have that that same standard that we that we apply and you know I'm speaking in blunt terms here. There's definitely um, there's definitely the Marty Stu, Gary Stu thing out there, um, and and I'm not suggesting that female protagonists or any other protagonists should be awesome without any flaws, and that that isn't a problem. It's just that we do have a serious double standard, in my opinion, in terms of the level of awesome you are permitted to attain. As mm-hmm. a female character vis-a-vis a male of uh, vis-a-vis a male character and I would love to see the concept of Mary Sue retired mm-hmm. she's outlived her welcome outstayed her welcome outlasted her usefulness I don't think that it's used in a discriminate enough way anymore to be useful
1: and it's 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 almost it's that concept of realism as well with the characters um and, and the, this is another one you brought up, and I, I was really glad you brought this up in the article because um, a, a number of, you know, I, I've actually seen a number of bloggers commenting on it, and the idea of the lovable rogue or the antihero, and how resistant audiences are when that's actually portrayed as a female, but the guys get a bit of a get get a bit of a free card there.
3: They do, and you know. I think, I think it's a shame. I, I would say that as somebody whose male protagonist is an anti-hero, the anti-hero in general will always take a lot of flack. Yes. Regardless of gender. The anti-hero, there are going to be people that that character just doesn't appeal to. And that's fine and it's good and it's as it should be. So, you know, I do want to put that caveat out there that I'm not suggesting either that that the, the male anti-hero just gets a free pass because he does not. Okay. However... The female antihero is definitely a rarer creature. There are fewer attempts to put it out there. And it doesn't meet with quite the same reception. And the, the more successful examples I can think of are almost invariably on the screen. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that is. It's an interesting question. Um, because usually one of the keys to winning sympathy for an antihero is spending significant amount of time in their heads. Um, that's how they win over the reader. And you don't get that benefit on screen, do you? Unless you're talking noir or something with a you know, with a monologue over top. You don't spend that time in a character's head, so why is it that we're more prepared to accept, say, Starbuck? Yeah. We love us some Starbuck. Yeah. I love us some Starbuck, but, but why are we prepared to accept that? I I guarantee you put Starbuck on the page previous to her already having her own reception through Battlestar Galactica. And I think really there would have been a very different reaction to that character. It's an unprovable hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I know you like the science, Christy. I do. It's an unprovable hypothesis, but it is nevertheless my hypothesis.
1: (laughs) I, and it's, it's funny. So I, I was thinking about this, this, um, uh, I, I was sort of thinking about characters and such as well and, and sort of antiheroes that have really, female antiheroes that have gone up, that have done well, or female protagonists that have done well in, in sci-fi fantasy. And one of them I, I keep thinking of is um, Ripley in Aliens, who's uh-huh. not really an
3: antihero. I don't think she's an hero She's badass.
1: She is. She is. And she's not necessarily towing the line with her you know, with with her company, and you know, with with other people there. But what's fascinating is that ar- that movie was originally written for a male protagonist.
3: But you can tell, and I think it's a very telling example, Christy, and it's a good one because you know, Ripley is from the nineteen eighties. Yeah. And in the nineteen eighties, the very the, the the character that stereotype that has archetype is a better word in this context that has come to be known as the warrior woman, or less flatteringly, the man with breasts, has since been almost rejected as being a new trope that's too common so i think it's very much a product of the times Mm -hmm. that that reception of of ripley i i wonder whether whether it would be a little bit different now now that's that being said again she's on the screen and it helps that she's got a good vehicle around her Mm -hmm. but you know it's it's another it's another one because i think a lot of people found that really empowering at the time but of course it doesn't pass the bechdel test does it
1: no, no, because and there aren't enough female characters for it to pass the Bechdel bet, test. She?
3: She's one female among a cast of males, and it, and just like gravity doesn't pass the Bechdel test. And I point this out because another thing I mentioned in the article is, uh, who cares? That doesn't tell you anything about the extent to which this is an empowering narrative for women.
1: Well, it's, it's like it's another, and, and, you know, this comes up in science as well. Like, I mean, it's another statistic that you use in your analysis of the product as a whole in itself is not the only test it's it's like taking it's um you know it's a bit like taking the bmi like i mean the BMI became a bit of a joke because they were giving it to bodybuilders and professional athletes, and they were flunking it spectacularly.
3: Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. And, and the thing is, and you know in my in my day job, former day job as an aid worker, this was another thing like um, we would constantly get under pressure particularly from, from, from donors, but also from management. Give me a checklist. I want to be able to measure whether we're getting closer to war or farther away from war. Further away from war, by, with a checklist, and I'd be sitting staring at my computer, going, "Really? <laughs> for okay, for war, okay, things to look for." <laughs> uh, gee whiz! Uh, I mean, I'm making light of this, but but really, that that um, that pressure to fetishization is that a word? I doubt
1: it. I, I think it can be. I think it totally uh, makes sense. So we're going to use it as a word.
3: Miracle, empirical measurement that tells you jack about context. Yeah, and just completely pushing aside uh, all of the qualitative, nuanced discussion—those shades of gray that really actually tell you something. So to go back to a movie like Gravity, or here's another one, GI Jane. And before you ask, no, I don't think it was a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can argue that this this movie didn't have a feminist intent. No, right. This was the, the whole point of the movie was that G.I. Jane is alone in the world. She is the lone example. She's trying to make her way in a male world. And you can't fail the Bechdel test more than G.I. Jane, at least as I recall. I certainly don't recall any other important female characters. No. I no, should, it was her. The 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 caveat on the table that it's been a long time
1: since I've seen that movie and I could be wrong. But there, right, I, there yeah. might have been a politician or somebody as uh, somebody that she spoke to. But I don't know what percentage of conversation they had. But I, I think you're right. I don't think it passed the back. door
3: I don't. And and so, and you know, so so that and I know there are analogs to that in the, in the fantasy world of stories about women trying to make their way in a man's world. And, you know, I, I don't see the utility of 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 the checklist in in measuring
1: whether that's done a good job or not. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like that bacon thing that and, and again I'm I'm thinking as a geneticist it's, but it's like that bacon thing
3: the WHO
1: thing yes yeah if you actually talk to scientists so I, a bunch of us of course uh, who are on Facebook we started going on on about that and it's like well the results are cool and it's it's good research and it's interesting but. The jump from "don't eat bacon" to you know, or to, from the research to "you shouldn't eat bacon" was was kind of frightening.
3: Yeah, that's a topic about which I feel very strongly. Christy is the bacon, and also UN reports. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably, I'll probably, you know, hold my tongue on that. And it's not glibness aside; it's not that I'm casting aspersions on 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 the WHO or the UN. It's simply to say that uh, a lot of this stuff is done by committee and one of the biggest challenges for people in my former line of work is turning a piece of research whether it's good or bad into a policy recommendation a viable policy recommendation and i
1: think you know the bacon got it wrong and it's it's funny too because you know and and you you can see everybody's trying to do a good job and it's one of the and i i think you know we're talking about the checklist i think this applies absolutely to the whole female protagonist and when people are trying to thank
3: you for bringing it back to the subject because it totally does apply though it I, on a 20 minute rant about bacon and science which while interesting it does relate though because it's the
1: same kind of argument and the, the, the only point I was going to make was that you know the scientists the people who made the policy are obviously not the scientists because the scientists would have say yeah there's a link you know um, maybe you just have it a couple times a week uh, but of course the policymakers have to fit it and they're not scientists so it's you could see everybody doing their job and I think we see the same kind of thought process go through with female protagonists
3: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think to, to go back to the article, one of the things that I think was really for me, the most interesting about it was that the article was, you know, the, the sort of sarcastic device in the opening, notwithstanding, the articles really aimed at us as a reading community yeah, um, and, you know, a reviewing community. And yet it seemed to resonate quite strongly with authors in particular. Um, I know that a lot of the shares that, um, that caught my attention were by other authors and yet when you read the comments too it seems like yeah the the overall message that was taken is this isn't this is an article about how to write a female protagonist and it's not no it's not it's an article about how to read a female protagonist but i think that's telling i'm not quite sure what it tells but, but it is interesting that we're still sort of looking at it as the author's responsibility to accurately rec- represent what we want as readers. And I say we because, you know, all of us as, as authors, we're all readers first and foremost. And we are all of us um, guilty of, of the same sins and, uh, and, you know, responsible for the same wins. I, I definitely have caught myself doing this sort of thing before where, you know, I've had a sort of a, an emotional reaction or a knee-jerk reaction to a character and then thought, hang on a minute why is it exactly that I'm reacting this way? But yeah, I do, I do think that's interesting that it did seem to resonate with authors.
1: Which is, it, it could be the audience who's reading, um, who's, who's reading Tor.com too.
3: Could be. I think it's interesting. And one of the things that I out myself about in the article too is that I have, I mean, as much as, and you and I were talking about this offline earlier, as much as being a writer involves having a thick skin or trying to have a thick skin, and above all, to try to not let yourself be influenced from your artistic vision, um, where you think you want the story to go and who the characters are supposed to be. It's hard not to, particularly if you're anticipating a type of criticism that comes up a lot, it's hard not to consciously or subconsciously factor that in Mm -hmm. to the story that you tell. And I've done it. I've dropped an entire plot line before because I just didn't want to deal with it. I saw the writing on the wall of, of how people would react or how I anticipated people would react and how some of the earliest reads of the manuscript, how some of the feedback that came back from people who had read early versions of the manuscript, who were women, and saying, yeah, I don't like this. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know what? I knew you wouldn't like it. I knew you wouldn't like it. And it wasn't important enough to the story. I'm being obtuse. There was, there was originally a plot line in, in one of the Bloodbound books where Alex gets pregnant.
2: Ah, okay.
3: And that got the axe. And it basically got the axe because the discussion that I had back and forth with one of the early readers, I could sort of sense that this was going to be the same discussion with readers in general. She did her job in terms of, like, putting up the red flag, this is going to come up. Yeah. And as much as it annoyed me, in the sense that it annoyed me that this was going to be the conversation, uh, it wasn't that her feedback annoyed me. It just it annoyed me that I could envisage this conversation coming up and my and not having the ability to explain my reasoning. That I just decided it was more trouble than it was worth. It's not going to hugely be detrimental to this book if I take it out, and which by the way maybe means that it should have come out anyway. Yep. Yeah. It's not even that. It's not whether I took it out or didn't. It's that I took it out for the wrong reasons, which is I just didn't want to have the conversation of, you know, of course she has to get pregnant because she's a woman. Yeah, and she's married
1: and yeah, no, it's... it's That's why the
3: plot point is in there. And some women do in fact want to get pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) I just, the conversation just felt like more trouble than it was worth. Yeah. So I took it out. And, you know, I don't regret the decision, but I regret that I had to make the decision
1: and the reasons around why you made the decision versus making it for the plot necessarily during the editorial process or... Yeah. 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 You know, and it's, it's, it's kind of that, it's that self-censorship thing, which terrifies me.
3: And we all do it, whether we admit it or not. I think, I think a lot of us do these things subconsciously. Yes. I think subconsciously, it's hard to, to differentiate between this plot line doesn't feel right because it's not improving the book or this plot line doesn't feel right because I'm kind of afraid of the rabbit hole it might take my book down.
1: You know, I wonder if these discussions were happening 10, 15, 20 years ago for authors when they were publishing their books or they were getting the second book ready or the third book ready. I wonder if that kind of, of feedback and censorship is almost an invention of social media.
3: I don't know. I I would doubt it. I suspect these conversations were being had, albeit in a different way. They weren't necessarily around certainly the broader aspects of diversity the way they are today, and they they weren't necessarily around gender. But thanks for bringing that up, because I think think it's a really good point, and, and one of the ones that I thankfully remembered to make in the article, but don't always remember to make when I'm talking about it. Broadly, it's a really good thing we're having this conversation. I think it's awesome that people have their gender lens on when they're reading or, or, or watching a movie um, because I don't think that was the case for, for the mainstream at any rate up until very recently and it's still frankly something that's building momentum and so I think overall that's a positive thing and the phenomenon that I'm that I'm talking about um, in, the, in the article is really just an unfortunate offshoot of that and, and I also wanted to say like I'm really proud of us in the sci-fi fantasy community for pushing the conversation as far as we have. Mm -hmm. Um, around gender issues and around diversity in general because we, we sure have a long way to go but as somebody who spent like over a decade working on social justice, a big part of which was gender equality. It's, so I'm not coming into this with a low bar or low expectations.
1: No, yeah.
3: A high bar in terms of, of what I want the discussion to look like. Um, and I really think that the sci-fi fantasy community is doing a great job of interrogating itself mm-hmm. for these issues. And I think that's fantastic. Um, and so I just wanted you know, just to say this is an area that needs a little bit more pushing because most of the conversation right now and, and that interrogation is happening on the author side of the equation, but as I argue in the piece, storytelling—and I think this is my biggest learning, moving from being a reader into being an author—storytelling isn't something the author does in a vacuum. Yeah, the story happens in the space in between me, the author, and you, the reader, or you, the author, and me, the reader. It's—it's it's a collision of of my frame of reference as a reader, my experiences, my expectations, and what you, the storyteller, are saying. Mm-hmm. And so that's a two-way street. That's a dialogue, really. And to, so to just expect authors alone to, you know, advance the discussion on, on gender, it's going to be a much slower progression than we would get if we focused on both sides of the equation.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's almost that idea of trying to push it away from, as you pointed out, the idea of lists and checking off, you know, is it a Mary Sue or is it past the Bechdel versus versus looking at it in its entirety and, 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 you know, in the characters as as how they're presented.
3: And I think, as I mentioned in the piece, the, the Bechdel test and checklists... And these quick and dirty tools, they're really valuable for kicking the door open. Yes. There's no way, I don't think, that looking for gender bias in films would be as easy to talk about and as readily discussed as it is without that handy tool having more or less gone viral. Mm -hmm. So it's fantastic. And so my point isn't that that this is a bad tool or a bad thing. My point is, let's be realistic about what it can tell us. Yeah. and, And we're ready. We've moved into the mainstream. We've barged into the room. Now let's level up the discussion.
1: Where are you excited to see the genre go uh, with respects to female protagonists and, and, and what you think it needs?
3: That's a heavy question. I mean, I'm excited to see where it's going. I think that there's there's just a tremendous amount of diversity that is out there. And I think it's moving in the right direction. I think you still tend to see a lot of stereotypes. they are newer, different stereotypes, but there's still a lot out there. And I think some of the books that have come out in the last few years have really pushed beyond that. And they've, come out with some just incredibly fleshed out, nuanced female protagonists, flawed female protagonists who are doing different kinds of things and different kinds of conceptions of what it means to be strong Mm -hmm. that that go beyond the sort of, I don't know, lasers and swords and, and all that good stuff. And I think that's really a positive thing. And I think it's really exciting to see how many male authors are writing female protagonists, because as those of us who've written somebody from another gender... It's not always easy. No. Uh, and one of the things you want to get right, I mean, it's, it's like anything else. If you're writing from the, the point of view of an eight-year-old, you want to make sure it sounds like an eight-year-old. And that's tough to do when you're 38. And similarly, you know, that was one of my biggest pieces of angst in writing Le Noir was, this is a guy. Um, can I get in the head of a guy? in a way that resonates in some completely not able to be articulated way, some some indefinable, indescribable way, he just is a guy. Mm -hmm. And I think women authors have been tackling that for a really long time. But it's nice to see so many male genre authors tackling the very daunting task and, frankly, opening themselves up to a lot of potential criticism by doing so. So it's very brave. It shouldn't have to be brave. Yeah. Yeah. But it is. And so kudos to the, you know, the, the Mark Lawrences and the, the Bradley who are who are doing that, who are writing female protagonists and getting her done.
1: Very cool. Where can people find you and what upcoming projects do you have?
3: Well, people can find me on Twitter, at etetensor, and my website. I am not a very prolific blogger in the sense that I probably only do it every couple of months. But yeah, I've got some pieces out there. You can find me on um, Porno Kitsch and Fantasy Book Critic and Tor.com and things like that. Um, But yeah, if you want to sort of keep up to date, Twitter is probably the best place. Um, The next thing that's coming out is The Bloodsworn, which is the final book in the Bloodbound trilogy, which comes out uh, next year. I'm so excited about it. It's by far the best thing. Thing I've ever written I'm excited uh, to read it yeah well I mean I, I left things in a relatively delicate position at the you, end of Bloodforged I think
1: it's fair to say you you did a very Empire Strikes Back thing
3: I did and you know <laughs> I did and I don't know if you saw my article on tour about that yeah yeah. but it was completely unintentional but so so there that I was I was literally laughing at myself at the end I was like wow did we ever Empire Strikes Back this one
2: yeah yeah
3: <laughs> in so many ways yeah, so that happened, but book three is you know the the roller coaster at the end, and there are no Ewoks. <laughs> I can promise you no Ewoks. There is there is a wolfhound, <laughs> a very badly behaved wolfhound, but that's as close as I get to the furry Ewoks. So that's what's next, and then I'm working on um, a secret work in progress. Those are always fun. Yes, <laughs> um, but yeah, that that'll that'll be a while yet. So that's what's up with me.
1: Awesome. We will post links for all of you. Um, we'll have links in the show notes to where you can find Erin and her books. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun.
3: Thanks for having me, Christy.
0: Visit Adventures in Sci Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us
1: at sci fi publishing at gmail.com. Sound
0: effects from the Free Sounds Project, music by Asymmetry found at musically.com no authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast